You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. It's still January, and January, I'd like to devote that as much as I can to the topic of abortion, since this is the month of Roe v. Wade. And this time we're going to be talking about the philosophy behind this. And to do that, I've brought on someone up and coming in the field, and that's my friend George Brom. He's an undergraduate student of philosophy based in Canada. He focuses on metaphysics and the philosophy of language with additional interest in bioethics, political philosophy, and the philosophy of religion. His current research focuses on the relationship between time and personal identity. So, George, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, and um, by the way, let me just say that I affirm the virgin birth. And so I let also me get that out of the way. I also affirm a virgin birth. I was going to ask that because I, I know that's a question all the, all the apologetics world wants to hear. Yep. Okay, so, um, Orja, how did you get to be doing what you're doing here? Okay, so um, I, I, I cannot think of a time when I was actually, like, pro-abortion or pro-choice. I was always pro-life because I was born into a Christian family and, you know, Christian values we value life. We see the image of God in every life. We value life as sacred. But then there was this one time when I was at this library and I was looking through the books on on the shelf. And I picked up this book by Randy Alcorn. It was called mm-hmm. Why Pro-Life. And I picked up the book and I started reading it because like, I, I, didn't, know, I, I didn't know about this pro-life, pro-choice mm-hmm. debate, the scale at which it was going on. And I read this book and I came to this chapter where he was talking about people with disabilities and how fetuses with disabilities or the unborn with disabilities and how they were being killed. And that actually scared me. Like, like I I hadn't thought of that before that people would actually abort their, their, their kids for the sole reason that they were disabled. And he has this quotation there, you know, he says, once a person is disabled and they are born, you know, we glorify them. We, we call them special needs. We have special classes for them. We have the special Olympics for them. But then if they're in the fetus, we have no, sorry, if they're in the womb, we have no problem with killing them. So it was this, it was this shock that the, that the, uh, that book gave me that made me look more into this issue. And then I was involved in a bit of like high school debates with my, my friends and in, in some of my classes, my, uh, biology classes, I brought up some issues with my friends and we had good conversations. And then when I came to university, I, uh, I took philosophy as my specialist. So I'm doing a specialist in philosophy and I started looking into bioethics classes. I took a few bioethics classes with professors who were clearly pro-choice and uh, we had some good conversations with them and I, I challenged their position and most of them were nice enough to respond to me. And so I, I got to know a lot of the arguments from the other side. And um, so, yeah, I, I, and I think that this is one of the most important conversations that we need to have in society because like, 
this is one of our greatest evils and and those who justify it are they need to be responded to because they are the ones in power or they are the most influential right now as compared to the pro life side the people in government especially in my country of canada where like abortion is almost seen as a settled topic it's like you know global warming or something you know it's like it's settled science abortion should be legal there's no problem with abortion i know in the us it's a bit more of a still a conversation going on and so it's 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 the state of my own country that sort of disturbs me and makes me want to do what i do mhm and i'm sure you know with my wife and i both being disabled i'm hoping mm-hmm. that disabled by aborting the disabled that's something we take very seriously yeah yeah now your specialty areas here it says one of them for instance is metaphysics That's yep. usually a very tricky term. Could you define what you mean by metaphysics for my audience? Sure. Yeah, I I I know why you say it's a tricky term because like you have an understanding of metaphysics as like this new age pantheistic like Deepak Chopra style of ideology mm-hmm. and and then that's not what I mean by metaphysics. So metaphysics, I think uh, Aristotle called it like the study of being qua being or mm-hmm. the study of first principles, the study of what like what is the fundamental nature of things that exist so whenever you ask questions like you know what is uh, you know what am i as a person or what are objects in the world made of or what is space what is time do we have a soul do we have free will you know what is what is a cause what is an effect how are causes and effects related all these questions are questions of metaphysics so metaphysics is basically the study of the of the fundamental nature of things that exist mhm Yeah, you also are interested in bioethics. And what exactly mm-hmm. does bioethics mean? So bioethics is bioethics is basically um any is so, so ethics is basically the study of what we ought to do mm-hmm. or or how we ought to live. And bioethics is bringing in life, biological life into the question of, you know, how we ought to act towards biological life. So if, if you have questions of things like abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research, Uh, all those questions come under bioethics and my my areas of interest are mainly abortion and euthanasia. Mhm. And I'm guessing that would probably include people who for instance support animal rights and such. Oh yeah, so actually as a matter of fact I'm taking a class this semester on like animal ethics and like uh, causing animal pain is the, you know on what scale is it right is mm-hmm. is is being vegan the right thing to do or you know whatever not and uh, i took that more out of an interest in uh, because of my interest in apologetics and you know the problem of animal pain and god and all that stuff so that's that's the only reason i took that class but yeah th- all those questions come into the th- uh, come into uh, bioethics as well mm-hmm. now when you're we had uh, rebecca valeris on here last week she was talking about the science and such and something i've said and i think she might have said to her i remember what she was saying at first but it seems that many times a lot of atheists such i encounter and not all atheists are pro choice or some are very strongly pro life mm-hmm. but a lot of ones i encounter they'll go on and on about how science is awesome science is a way to know everything and such but then as soon as they get to the topic of abortion they turn to philosophers instead Right. Yeah, that's actually that's actually um quite interesting because if you look at how medical science has advanced like from say 1973 when uh Roe v. Wade was passed, mm-hmm. you can see the progression and see that the science is actually on the side of the pro-life side, not on the pro-choice side. Like you see um you know the, for example fetal viability 
how long can a fetus survive outside the womb if it's born prematurely, it's actually been improving and the fetus can be viable at earlier stages in the pregnancy because of scientific advances. And even then, so, so, so that's something that the pro-choice side cannot handle. And that's why they sort of pivot to philosophy. They, you know, they would quote someone like Peter Singer or Michael Dooley to sort of justify their views or, you know, Judith, Judith Thompson or someone like that to sort of justify their views on abortion instead of, you know, sticking with the science. And when they stick to the science for everything else, including like global warming or, or, or whatever not. Yeah. But I'm gathering that based on what you're telling me so much, you can save them. Okay, let's go ahead and go to the science. You're not going to have much luck there anyway. Yeah. I mean, go to the philosophy. You're not going to have much luck there anyway. Yeah. Okay. Go go ahead. No, so so that's exactly what I would say. So so for me, I I I don't I don't think science by itself can actually make a pro pro life argument mm-hmm. because science. So I I think science gives you good ammunition for for making an argument, but the making of an argument itself is the job of philosophy. And I think J.P. Moreland in his newest book, um, I think it's called Scientism and Secularism, mm-hmm. he, he, defines a, uh, he defines the foundations of science as being purely philosophical because science can have all this data, but what you do with the data is actually philosophy and the foundations of science, you know, even the scientific method is actually a philosophical idea that you should trust your senses, that you should, that you should test things to see whether they can be falsified. All those things are actually philosophical ideas. And so the foundations of science are philosophy. And so you can use all the scientific data that supports uh, the pro-life position. And if you only stick with that, you're not going to get anywhere. So you need to incorporate them into a philosophical argument. And so when someone says, you know, well, let's stay away from the science, let's move on to philosophy. And here are X, Y, and Z reasons why you should be pro-choice. I tell them, well, let's go through with the philosophy. And at the end of the day, you will see that philosophy in itself, if you're making good, if you're making a good argument at the end of the day, you're still going to end up in a pro-life position or you, you'll have to affirm that the fetus is somehow a life that's worth protecting. Otherwise you're going to end up contradicting yourself somewhere with all the other beliefs that you hold. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go ahead and, and start giving us a hypothetical case for pro-life with using the philosophy. Okay, so the approach that, so I am aware of the other approaches that exist, which, you know, some, uh, some people argue from the, you know, existence of a soul, a more religious pro-life argument, let's say, but I, I use a more common sense approach to, a common sense philosophy approach to giving a pro-life case. So what I first do is I try to establish that the fetus or the unborn child is a human being. So I mean, now before I before I go into the philosophy, let me just make a point about language because I think language is important in how we discuss these uh, issues. So a lot of a lot of pro-life activists actually have a problem with the word fetus. Mm-hmm. You know, they say don't use the word fetus. You're supposed to use the word un- uh, pre-born, and um, I actually don't mind using the word fetus because I think it's a scientifically accurate term that describes, uh, I believe it's after 11 weeks, that describes the unborn child after 11 weeks. And so there, I don't find a problem with using the term. Now, what I do find a problem with is when a pro-choice advocate tries enforcing the word fetus on me if I want to use another word. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a wholly different thing because like if I'm using the word, if I say, you know, um, why are you aborting the baby? And they say, you know, don't refer to it as a baby, refer to it as a fetus. That's when I have a problem. And they start enforcing the language because I think the, the word fetus and baby, I can use it in equivocal sense as long as you as long as you affirm that the the, the the fetus is just an unborn 
stage of the baby. That's it. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make that clear. So I, I might use the word fetus here, and I don't want any uh, pro-life advocates to think that I'm I'm using a word that I'm not supposed to be using. So um, I, I usually first start off by establishing that the fetus is a human being. And um, that's where I use a lot of the scientific arguments. So I have an argument from like fetal patienthood. That was one that I published uh, uh, an article on. I usually have other arguments on like how the... Um, how the fetus is actually distinct from the mother. So the fetus is not a part of the mother's body. It has its own DNA. It has its uh, own, you know, the mother can be a female and the child can have an XY chromosome. So it's a completely different um, organism. It's it's of a different sex. And Mm -hmm. uh, so you have all these different arguments that can establish that the fetus is a human being. And then you move on to establish that all human beings are persons. Mm-hmm. And if all human beings are persons and the fetus is a human being, then you establish that the fetus is a person. And then you get them to admit that, you know, is it is it right to kill a person if you have no justifiable reason to do so? Is it right to kill any person if there's no justifiable reason to do so? And usually people say no. And so you get them to affirm that, yes, then it is wrong to kill a fetus. And so it is wrong to have an abortion, let's say. Now, this works, this this common sense approach works for most cases, except one specific case where people agree to affirm the personhood of the fetus, but they will still allow for abortion. So I'm sure you've heard of Thompson's uh, violinist argument. Yes. Yeah, so so that's that's one example of someone who would be ready to affirm the personhood of the fetus, but then they would give something along the lines of a bodily rights argument or, uh, you know, the sovereignty of the woman or, uh, you know, the right to refuse uh, to to have the child and therefore... Let's not, let's not, it's okay to abort the fetus. And um, so that's, that's, that's the case that won't work. So I hope we can talk about that later. But this common sense approach is what I usually use to bring up, uh, to, to get the other, to show the other person my case for why abortion is immoral. Okay, I'm curious why it is you have no problem referring to the, what's in the womb as a fetus, but when you want to call it a baby, you get upset when other people call it a fetus. Sorry, could you repeat it again? I'm curious why it is that you've said you have no problem using the word fetus, mm-hmm. but when you say baby, referring to what's in the womb, and someone else says fetus, right, then right. you object. Uh, that seems kind of inconsistent to me. Okay, uh, so I can explain. So, so the thing, the reason why I do that is not because is not because what they're referring to is a scientifically inaccurate position. So they are right to say that it's a fetus. But the problem is they're using the the motive for their using it is not to point out my scientific inaccuracy. First of all, there's nothing inaccurate in saying that, you know, the baby, the, 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 the thing in the womb is a baby. It's just an unborn baby. And an unborn baby is a fetus. That's accurate. So they're pointing out an accurate fact. But their motive for pointing that out is because they feel that my use of the word baby is humanizing what they are trying to justify killing. And so they think the word fetus is somehow a dehumanizing word. And so they are trying to oppose my humanizing the the baby. That's all they're trying to do. They're Mm -hmm. not actually looking for scientific accuracy. If they care so much about scientific accuracy, they'd probably be okay with me calling it a a baby. But that's Mm -hmm. not what they're doing. They're trying to make sure that I don't humanize the thing that they're trying to kill in front of everyone else. Because once you humanize something, then it's really difficult to kill it. If you look at everything in the past, all the genocides in the past, the first step in anything is to dehumanize what you're going to kill. Right. You refer to them as animals, you refer to them as something subhuman, and then you go and kill it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they're trying to do. And so my my usual typical response when they say, uh, uh, you know, 
the don't refer to it as a baby, refer to it as a fetus. My usual response to them is then why don't you refer to the woman as a gravita? Because a gravita is the the counterpart to the fetus. The mother is called a gravita and the the baby is called a fetus at that stage of pregnancy. So are you okay with me? If I if you want me to use the word fetus, are you okay with me referring to the woman as gravita? And they usually say no. Mm-hmm. Or, or they have nothing to say. So so you you sort of expose their motive for why they want you to use the word that they want you to use. Now, what exactly is meant by the word fetus? So the word fetus, I believe, I might remember this wrong, but I think the word fetus just means offspring. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it, it's, it's just, it just refers to the unborn, uh, the unborn stage of the offspring of, uh, of an organism. So I don't think it's particularly dehumanizing in a sense that you can say a human fetus, because I think a fetus can be referred to any other animal. So you say a human fetus and you're referring to an unborn baby. So I don't, I, I don't think that's problematic. Okay, one of the steps in your argument, I think, was saying, are humans are persons. Right. This is something I think would be highly contested today, yes. thanks to abortion. Yep. Can you back this premise? Okay, so here's here's my argument. This is why I call it a common sense argument. So I work from an axiom that if something is commonsensical, or if something is something seems known to us by intuition, then the person who is opposing that intuition needs to bring up a counter argument that effectively, that gives me a reasonable doubt in my intuition. Otherwise, I have no reason to sort of abandon that common sense intuition. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see what I mean? Yes. So, and, and so when you, when you ask someone, do you think that all human beings are persons, there seems to be an intuition or a common sense idea that that is true. There seems to be a common sense understanding that whenever you say all human beings are persons, it seems to be true, except when you bring in the idea of abortion or the idea, if, if you want to talk about genocides or whatever, not. But otherwise, there seems to be this intuition that all human beings are persons, except when you talk about abortion. So then so they, they'll probably give you uh, an example of a certain, let's say, functions that the fetus does not perform to sort of disqualify it from being a person. And that's when you sort of get into the different the different functions. You ask them, so you, I, ask, I usually ask them, so give me an example of why a certain class of human being is not a person. Because I don't have to justify that all human beings are persons. They're the ones who have to tell me which classes of human beings are not persons and why it is that they believe that those, those classes of human beings are not persons. So if, if you want to talk about you know, unborn babies, then let's talk about that and tell me why you don't believe that unborn babies are full humans. And then they give me their reasons. You know, they, they come up with sentience. They come up with, uh, you know, let's say, brain, some stages of brain development. They say uh, the feeling of pain or um, the inability to have, like, self-consciousness. So they give all these different, what do you call it, different criteria for why the unborn is not a, uh, a human person. And then we begin to challenge them on that. And if, if you want to bring any of those examples up, I can talk about them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what... Exactly. When do you think it's meant by a person? What do I mean by a person? Yeah. So a person, a, a person is um, a person can be. It's it's a more legal term than a biological term, and it just means a per- So if you look in the dictionary, for example, a person is just referred to as like a a human a human being with certain capacities, right? So it's a human capacity that it's a human it's 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 a human being with certain capacities like the ability to reason or the ability to have consciousness and it has certain rights. Like it needs to that those rights need to be protected. So that's that's what I think a definition a good definition of a person can be. 
Okay. Like the right to life, for example, that the person needs to be protected, the right to, um, and, and by the way, let me just qualify this. So these capacities don't need to be exercised all the time by this, by this individual to be called a person. They just need to have the potential or they just need to be within the class of beings that actually exercise these capacities to be called a person. Because mm-hmm. then otherwise you'd be disqualifying a lot of human beings. You would make a lot of things we consider persons to be non-persons. Like what? Um, for example, if, if you if, so if you say that the any, every person who has, uh, sorry, everything that has consciousness is a person, if, if that's the criteria that is set up, then if you say that they actively have to have consciousness at all times to be a person, then someone who's like a coma patient, for example, would not be a person. Um, if you say like, you know, rational functioning is the criteria for being a person and they should be actively exercising it to be a person, then when, you, when you're when you asleep, you're not a person. So because person is a legal term, then if I kill someone when they're asleep and rationality, active exercise of rationality is the criteria for personhood, then my killing a sleeping person would probably not be an immoral act according to someone who believes that. So it's it's not an active exercise. It's more of the possession of that capacity. Mm. But what about the whole thing for that feeling pain? Mm-hmm. For instance, right. So, so feeling pain, uh, feeling pain is uh, an example. But then, what about cases of uh, you know individuals who have like an uh, I, f- I forget what's the name of the disease. Sepa. I believe Sepa. Exactly. Yeah, Sepa. So the congenital insensitivity to pain, which is that uh, the individual cannot feel pain, and so they would be rendered non-persons. Or what about patients under anesthesia when they are undergoing surgery? What if the doctor kills them? You know, and that that would be considered a crime because they are persons. And so the inability to feel pain or pleasure does not make anyone more or less a person. It's more so being a member of a community that lets you, that possesses these capacities and your own potentially possessing the capacity to Mm -hmm. have that, that it is within your human nature to have that capacity. That's what makes you a person. Mm -hmm. And I know also there are some people who like ask about when the life begins because you've said mm-hmm. that it's a fetus at 11 right. weeks would you say life begins at conception though yes i would say life begins at conception and the reason why i say that is because if you ever set up the point of you know when life begins at any point after that or uh well again First of all, I would go to the scientific argument. So the scientific argument for life beginning at conception is strong because you cannot point at any other point to say that this is when life begins. Like they say at the point of conception, when there is a unique when there's a unique organism growing within you, that is a new life. That's not part of the the woman's body. That's not a part of the man's body that came into the woman's body. There's something unique. There's something with a unique DNA. There's something with a unique uh, blood group. There's something, you know, that has a clear demarcation, like the cells they divide within a clearly demarcated um, location. And so all these point to the fact that there is a separate organism that begins to exist within the mother's womb. So I don't think there's much, let's say, um, much disagreement within the scientific community on when life begins. I think the bigger question is when does personhood begin? Or mm-hmm. when does something become a person? Because that's where, you know, things differ in perspective. You have people from like us, the pro-life activists who believe that personhood begins at conception, all the way to someone like Peter Singer, who thinks that personhood actually begins after birth. So you can actually kill your infant or Michael Tooley. He has a famous paper called Abortion and Infanticide, where he argues that, you know, infanticide is actually 
on the same moral plane as abortion. And so if you, if you, he's, he's a priest pro-choice. So he thinks that if you're pro-choice, you should also be pro-choice about killing your infant because the infant is not actually a full human being. And so there's a whole spectrum on where they basically disagree about personhood. And I think the, so the big, the big question that needs to be answered is when does personhood begin? And I think it begins at conception, not at birth or after birth. I have to say, I find it incredibly frightening Mm-hmm. To hear these kinds of philosophers speaking right. this way about infanticide, even yeah, and like the, the and the, the 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 most disturbing thing though is that they're the most consistent ones about abortion, like they're the ones who are in the right, like like they have a a purely consistent view that if you are arguing for abortion, you should also be arguing for infanticide because. Because the usual, you know, the categories that they use, like uh, self-awareness, that's, that's um, what's his name, uh, Peter Singer's criteria. So, like, you should be able to identify yourself, you should be self-conscious, and you should be able to identify yourself as a continuous being across time. And, like, I don't think babies until the age of, like, one and a half or two actually have that. Like, if you place a, a you know, um, six-month-old baby in front of a mirror... They cannot even identify themselves that, you know, they are looking at themselves in the mirror. So they, you can kill your six-month-old infant. There's there's no problem with that. Uh, I think the uh, science fiction writer, Philip Dick, even once wrote a story mm-hmm. about this universe where parents could call a van of sorts to come and pick up their kids, preteen kids and such, and it would be kind of be like the execution van, such that kids who went in, they never came back. Hmm. And it it's kind of it could be considered a commentary on abortion, right? And and I think if you look back at like Nazi Germany, for example, like the parallels between and I don't want to demean any like, you know, any any anybody who's of the Jewish community by saying that, you know, like the Holocaust is happening again or something. But like if you just compare the the two um, events that happened, like the parallels are shocking. The fact how they first dehumanize them, then how like the process happens, where they justify it, where they where they, you know, give you good reasons why this group of human beings should be killed. Like the mm-hmm. parallels between any of these genocides, any of these different genocides and the abortion issue or even slavery and abortion, like the whole thing about, you know, don't like abortion, don't have one. That's exactly what they said. If, if you don't like slavery, don't buy one. Mm-hmm. Like like the, the, the parallels are amazing. And it, it's shocking that people don't see it and people don't understand the problem that this that this issue of abortion actually poses to our let's call it like moral compass. Mm hmm. Uh, do you suspect that one of the main reasons people really don't see this is something else that Rebecca has because I said if abortion had nothing to do with sex, I think everyone would condemn it. Oh, of course. It's 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 so so again, I think all this comes back to so I, Jordan Peterson makes a point about this. Jordan Peterson says, like, you know, the the invention of the birth control pill mm-hmm. was like the revolution that sort of changed everything and it 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 we don't know what to do with it because it's it's been like what fifty years or something since it's been invented, mm-hmm. and it's and and it's been used so fast so soon that it sort of derailed our views on everything. Because before that, you know, sex was something that was sacred. It was it was not something that could be done, you know, 
for whatever reason you wanted. And and now just because of the invention of this birth control pill, you can actually reduce sex to whatever you want it to be. So it can be for pleasure. It can be for, you know, um, getting your stress off. It can be for like, and, and of course you have other things like pornography and everything else that objectifies women. So you, you no longer view women as a sacred part of your own species, but more so something that you can use to get your own you know, to get your own way. And after that, what happens is you're basically telling people with the, for example, with something like the birth control pill is that, you know, now I can perform an action and actually get away with the consequences. So there are no consequences anymore. There's nothing I have to fear. I have no responsibility for what happens after the action because I have a way of eliminating it. And then comes abortion and abortion is the ultimate way of running away from the consequences, from the natural consequences of sex. Mm-hmm. And so once you provide someone a way out, it's like the purge, like anything, anything is allowed, everything can happen. And so abortion is seen by people as the way out and, and no one's going to come out and ad- admit it, but like making abortion illegal would have, would have to have people putting their own behaviors under check. Mm-hmm. And that's what people don't like. People like to be autonomous. They don't see freedom as sort of the right to do what you ought to do. They see freedom as the right to do whatever you want to do. And that's, and that's the huge distinction. And that's, that's what people, that's why people hate this idea of like my body, my rights, or, you know, you stay out of my bedroom or whatever, not like that, that, that's the mindset behind this, behind these slogans. Mm -hmm. I was telling, there was a a guy who even wrote, something about a bureau in Texas. And mm-hmm. he he was very upfront about why he thought men should defend the bill, which made abortion much more easier to get. And he just said up front, your sex life is at stake. Right. And I, 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 I was listening to someone else who was talking about abortion the other day. He's a he's a pro choice advocate. He he's a friend of mine and, and he was basically telling me that, you know, I cannot imagine the number of times like my life would have been messed up if like the pill didn't exist because like I've, I've done all these X, Y, and Z things and I would probably have been a father like 10 times by now. So it's, it's, it's that sort of, it's that sort of escapist attitude, you know, like abortion gives you a way of escape. And once that's closed off, like, what are you going to do? Go ahead. No, that's it. That's it. Now, this doesn't mean, though, that every couple practicing contraception you've got a problem with, right? No, of course not. Because uh, so, so this is a this is a typical pro-choice argument. They say, well, doesn't contraception kill millions of sperms or something, or you, you know, like you're you're wasting sperms or whatever, not? And isn't that a, kill, a killing of life? Well, those are your cells. Those do not constitute a new human being. And we're talking about abortion. That's something else. So, uh, so sex as an act is something that I believe God created for, like the male and female, to uh, to bring them together, to make them one. And mm-hmm. that as an action should not be reduced to merely a child-producing action, but also child-producing is a function that God built into it. So that's a natural function. But I, I have nothing against people who use contraception as a mechanism because that's not that's not harming the bodily integrity of another, say, a human being. I, I'd say you would make an exception about forms of contraception that actively abort. Yes, child. Yes. Yeah, so there are there are forms of contraception that if uh, I, I um, again I'm, I'm horrible at these names. It's like RU four eight six or something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's basically when you take it and uh, you can get the baby to be detached from your uh, placenta. I believe it basically starves the baby to death. 
Mm. And uh, that's yeah, of course not. That that's again that that's that's the pill. Uh, that's a contraceptive that's actually harming another human being. So that's basically abortion, except you're not going to a doctor to get it admi- administered. It's still killing a, a human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's consider some things about you're talking about the baby afterwards. But let's consider about what's inside the womb here to see if it qualifies as a person. There are some people that look at the aspect of what's known as twinning, oh, where yes, the yes. baby, what the zygote, as it were, splits in two and then comes yep. back together. Now, you can check me if I'm wrong, but I've never met a human being who's capable of doing this kind of thing today. So doesn't that tell us that that's not exactly a human? So so you're saying that the point before twinning... Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? Doesn't it actually make like the the thing that's what what is what is being splitting? Like, how do you know whether that's one person or two people? Is that is that sort of the objection? Uh, kind of, yeah. And because you know you're talking about common sense, where common sense tells me yeah. human beings can't split themselves in two and come together again. Yeah. Okay. So 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 again, but but you can go back to so here here's the argument that I would give for twinning. So doesn't the twinning of like an embryo prove that the embryo is not an individual human being? And so isn't that a possible argument against it? Well, you can still argue that the potentiality for twinning has no impact on whether there's at least one person. So you have an embryo that could possibly twin, but it doesn't reduce the fact that it doesn't make it so that it's not a human being. All it tells you is that, that, that this is at least one human being and this is a function that a human being at that stage of development can perform or this is a function that a life at that stage of development can perform that it splits into two it's it's it doesn't let's how can i put this it doesn't make it not another separate human life because it still has all those qualities it still has all those qualities that i described before about what do you call it? The uh, the separateness, the different biological systems and everything. So it's not part of the mother's body, neither is it something that purely comes from the father. It is a third person in there. And it can be a third person, it can be a fourth person, because there could be more than one person. And uh, let me, okay, so this comes to mind right now. I, I, was, I was just thinking about this. What about cloning? Wouldn't cloning actually qualify as an example of this? So like, you know, Nick Peters can actually... Uh, it, it it might it, it could be possible in the future that Nick Peters can be duplicated into another you know Nick Peters, but that doesn't make the first Nick Peters not a not a person just because there is a potential for making him into it, making another Nick Peters. Uh, I'm pretty sure whenever you start talking about cloning, me my my wife was probably screaming in agony somewhere about one more time. <laughs> <laughs> she can't handle one of you. <laughs> one of me is enough for her. Right. No right. more, please. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. But, yeah. But wouldn't you think that that's, that's a possible response to the uh, twinning example, that it is actually like logically possible for a human being to be made into another one, and it doesn't reduce the humanity of the first organism that existed? Sure. Why not? Yep. Now, uh, let me let me tell you of another case actually, and mm-hmm. this is a case that I, I don't have an answer to. So there are cases where two embryos actually fuse into one. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't actually found an answer to this. Like this is a, this is something that stumps me. So if there is anyone out there, any pro life activist or philosopher who can answer this for me, please help me out. That I I don't know. There it's, it's called embryo fusion. It's basically two embryos, but then they fuse into one and they form like one human being 
And mm-hmm. I have no idea of how that, that works. Mm-hmm. Well, let's also consider another topic for those of us who are much, who are theists and such. Some people will say, well, geez, why should you be opposed to abortion? I mean, don't you know how many miscarriages there are? Apparently God doesn't have a problem with abortion. Oh, so God's the biggest abortionist. I've heard this one before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, again, so so this 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 question really makes me laugh sometimes because first of all let's let's agree on the fact that god is the one who creates life mm-hmm. and he has the right to take it away but we're not the ones who we're not the ones who are responsible for life on earth and therefore we should consider every life a sacred and secondly because god exists and god has commanded us that he who you know takes the life of one man will have to pay with his own blood and so god has defined human life as sacred so god whatever god does we cannot justify doing the same thing just because we are two different sorts of beings but let me make a more again a more common sense argument for this so the argument that the pro choice persons making goes something like this abortions happen uh, sorry um, what do you call it? spontaneous abortions or miscarriages happen all the time therefore it's okay for me to have an intentional abortion well people who die in accidental car accidents all the time doesn't mean i go and run someone down the street like i run someone down it, mm-hmm. it it just doesn't follow. It doesn't justify my going and intentionally running someone down with a car just because people die by accident. Or, you know, I think William Lane Craig puts it this way, you know, human beings die. Therefore, it doesn't justify my going and killing another human being. Mm-hmm. So just because something happens in nature doesn't justify our intentionally bringing it about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think, though, from your perspective of philosophy of religion, that it is valid to say that God does abort these human beings, or just that he allows it to happen? I would say he allows it to happen. Yeah, I wouldn't say God aborts human beings. I, so again, I think God has foreknowledge of whatever is going to happen. And um, I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat favorable to Aquinas. So I believe it's all part of God's eternal decree, everything that happens. But even then... Um, I don't think God necessarily is killing these human beings like as the efficient cause, you know, aborting these human beings. I think there are events that happen by nature. You could you could posit it to the fall, for example, you know, all these tragic events that happen in nature, whether they be tsunamis or miscarriages, you know, the large scale or the smaller scale. All of these things are a product of human sin and the fallenness of man and how it has affected nature rather than putting the blame solely on God's shoulders. So we as a human race, also have some some responsibility in the, the, the state the, the world is in today. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we also made a statement about sales and such sometime earlier on, and some people have said, well, you know, sperm and eggs, they each have the sales necessary for <clears throat> sales, for instance. Does that mean something to say masturbation is mass murder, for instance? Well, I think I think masturbation's wrong for other reasons, but masturbation. So this is something that Christopher Hitchens said: you're you're doing a genocide every time you masturbate. But no, it's not because otherwise, when you clap your hands or when you walk, you're basically you know cells are dying in your from your skin, or there there are cells that that are dying in your body every day. And no, so it's 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 not necessarily a genocide because you're not killing another human being. You're not killing another organism. Mm-hmm. you're killing your own cells and put aside the argument against masturbation masturbation like a sperm in itself cannot grow into a developed human being and neither can an egg 
Otherwise, every time a woman, you know, is on her period, she's actually killing a baby. No, she's not, because that's just a cell. That's that's part of the natural process of, you know, her body releasing eggs and disposing of them. Mm-hmm. It's not actually killing a new human being. It's only when the problem of it's only when the when the uh, what do you call it the the event of fertilization happens that there is a creation of a new human being at conception and anything after that that affects the the new human being whether it be embryo or a fetus that's when a human life is affected mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so let's get to the judith jarvis thompson what is yep. her argument right okay so she has an ingenious argument and I, i'll be honest with you like it is a powerful argument and when you when you first let's say when you first hear it there are times there there are pro lifers i've seen who have been stumped and um but but there so i'll i'll just I remember hearing a story of a of one uh, pro lifer very smart one such very well known if i remember correctly he said that he uh, when he was first started he was driving he heard, heard, you know he said he got into a car accident hearing it Oh yeah, yeah. Like it's a really smart argument, but then when you think a few times about it, it doesn't actually hold up. And I, I, let me describe the argument. So the argument is like you know you go to this um, concert, this concert, and uh, you you pass out, and then you wake up when you wake up the next morning, and you find yourself like plugged into this famous violinist who is unconscious, and he needs uh and he needs to be connected to your. Uh, blood and your kidneys to survive so now if you unplug yourself from the violinist then the violinist will die and uh, you were told by the doctors that you know he's a famous violinist what happened was that the royal society of music or something they kidnapped you and they wanted to save his life and so they kidnapped you and you're the only one whose blood and kidneys were a match and you need to be plugged into him for nine months now if you want to unplug yourself you know because you want to go and do your work or whatever not you don't want to stay plugged into someone else for nine months is unplugging yourself immoral or and is staying plugged the right thing to do and what thompson says is that if you stay plugged in you're a really heroic person you know you're a good person you're she, she, you're what she calls a good samaritan but you're not morally obligated to stay plugged in you're free to unplug yourself because you, that person does not have a right to your organs and this is what she calls a minimally decent samaritan where like you know you are under no obligation you can just unplug yourself let the violinist die and walk away and you have done nothing wrong now so th- so that's the that's the uh, that's the argument and if you have any comments feel free to go ahead and on the face of it, i think most people of the pro-life persuasion hearing that would think you know i i i know there's got to be something wrong with that argument mm-hmm. but i can't place it now i've I've done several shows on this kind of topic, so I have my own problems with the argument, but that's not for me to point out. You're the guest. So, <laughs> I mean, you I, I'm sure you can agree about that. I don't face it. a lot of Christians such would look and say, I, I know there's something wrong with that argument, but I can't think about what it is. Yeah, so so there are several. So let me start with uh the most basic, the most like the most simple one to understand is like Every time you have sex, there is a possible. So, so clearly, this first of all, this is a this this is connected to abortion. You know, the nine months, the being plugged in for nine months and being stuck with this one person connected to you. That's that's a clear thing to abortion. But the thing is, this person who was plugged into the violinist, she went to a concert and uh, she or he went to a concert and they passed out and then they got connected to this violinist. But that's not analogous to sex because every time you have sex, it is possible that you get pregnant. 
but it's not the same for attending a concert. Like every time you go to a concert, it is not necessarily true that you, you know, you get kidnapped and hooked to a violinist. So the act, the natural consequences of sex is one thing. And the natural consequences of say attending a concert is something else. So the, so the act that starts it all is disanalogous. Now you could, uh, let me, let me pause you right there. In fact, give me some people say here. Okay. And that's how some people say, look, I consented to have sex, but mm-hmm. I did not consent to pregnancy. Well, how is that any different from saying that, you know, I consented to drinking, I, I consented I consented to eating food, but I did not consent to the food being digested. Like, like the, the, there, there is a high possibility of your getting pregnant after having sex just because sex involves a procedure that leads, a natural procedure that leads to uh, conception mm-hmm. just like eating food it's highly probable that that food is going to get digested like unless you have some problem with your digestive system it's it's highly probable that it's so so eating food is not consent for digestion is the same thing as saying you know having sex is not consent to pregnancy you are oh. you're arguing with how nature works and you you have no control over that okay one problem i can see with that composition is that pretty much every time you eat something mm-hmm. it gets digested but there right. are several couples out there who want to have children and we can tell you we've had sex plenty of times never mm-hmm. happened right so so i so i could that that could be and i don't i don't mean to be insensitive to those people but that could yeah. be comparable to where the 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 process the, the natural process does not work as it should or it's not working at the rate that it should or you you could explain it but but the natural the process in general the general understanding for the human race is that whenever you eat food okay so leave aside the food example, whenever you have sex, there is a possibility, even if it's a 25% possibility or a 2% possibility, there is a possibility that the act will lead to pregnancy just because that's one of the natural consequences of the act. Well, I, maybe there, the, the act might have a hundred different other natural consequences like feeling pleasure, feeling euphoric, feeling tired, whatever or not. But one of the consequences of that act is that it has the potential to produce another human being. And... Mm-hmm. That is not something that you get to consent to. That's something that's included as part of the act that you're agreeing to perform. Okay, so let's get back to Judith Jarvis Thompson. You're talking about how that uh, you're saying that, you know, just because you go to a concert doesn't mean you're agreeing to, to you right. know, be, be hooked up to a violinist. Right. So, so Thompson could respond to this, and I think I think she does by saying that her violinist analogy actually works for something like rape, mm-hmm. and not for many other cases of abortion. So, rape, yes, it's it's something that the woman is forced to do; she's not consenting to do. And once again, I we have to make it clear that you know, rape, the cases of rape, as 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 much as as horrible as they are, they only constitute one percent of the total number of abortions. Mm-hmm. So we're Thompson's argument falls down all the way to justifying 1% of abortions. That's it. The 99% of abortions that happen, Thompson's argument doesn't work for them. So you have to so if a pro-choice person's using this argument against you, then you have to ask them, are you okay with saying that all these other abortions are wrong and abortion only in the case of rape should be allowed for the reasons that Thompson gives? And they'll probably say no because they're using this this borderline case 
for justifying all the other abortions that they want to justify. So that's 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 one move that you can make. But even other than that, let me just uh, we can we can return to the case of rape later because I think that's uh, that's something that pro-life people should be careful when they're handling. But just to get back to like uh, Thompson's example. Another disanalogy between the two cases of the abortion and the violinist is that you're unplugging yourself from the violinist, but you cannot actually just unplug yourself from your fetus. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Because like unplugging is something like passive euthanasia. You just pull the plug and you let the person die. But in abortion, this is a completely different scenario. Perhaps a more analogous scenario would be that you get up from the bed next to the violinist and you go and stab him in the chest. Mm-hmm. Is that a moral action? I guess Thompson would have to say no. She would say you could unplug yourself and go and live your own life, and it's possible that the violinist like miraculously wakes up. But here you're ensuring that the violinist dies so that you can walk away. And that's what happens in an abortion. You know, abortions that are, aren't successful, they're called botched abortions. Abortions that don't end the life of the child, they're called botched abortions. So it's not, it's not just an unplugging process. It's actually a killing process, and you're ensuring that the thing that you want to get rid of actually dies. And mm. so that's another thing where it's disanalogous. And um, one more thing, uh, one more thing is the intention, the argument from intention. So it's like in the case of the violinist, you cannot actually foresee the death of the violinist. I, ju- I just made the case uh, before that it's possible for you to unplug yourself and, you know, by some miraculous reason, the violinist survives. Your intent is not to kill the violinist. Your intent is just to free yourself so that you can go on and do what you want. But in an abortion, there might be the intent to free yourself. You know, people say, I don't want to have this baby because it's going to cause a hundred different inconveniences to my life. You know, I'm a young mother. I don't have money, so on and so forth. But there's also the intention that you have to kill this child. And that's not present in the violinist case. In the violinist case, you're merely unplugging yourself to free yourself. You don't actually worry about whether or not the violinist is dead. But in the case of abortion, you have to make sure that you're killing this child. So the two analogies are actually quite, let's say, the two analogies are not actually analogies at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, are you aware if you observe Thompson has come out and just said, okay, I I see that... uh, that this argument only works for rape or anything like that. Oh, actually, she is. So, so in the same essay, so this is, uh, I believe it's called In Defense of Abortion. In the same essay, she admits that this example only works for uh, rape. And then she gives other examples. There's a burglar example and there's a people seeds example. There, these are two examples. If you want, I can describe them to you. And uh, they're, they're supposed to work for cases that are not cases of rape. So basically cases in which there's consensual sex, she even gives one for, uh, what do you call it, contraception, where there's contraception involved and the contraception does not work, and she justifies abortion in those cases as well. Uh, yeah, feel free to give those arguments. Okay, so uh, so the burglar analogy is basically you leave a window open in your house and a burglar comes into your house through that open window. Now, opening the window is not you giving permission to the burglar to come in, and so the burglar does not have a right to come into your house, so you have every right to expel the burglar from your house. Now, uh, there might be the case in which, like, you know, you put up bars on the windows, and you open your window, but somehow one of the bars is, like, faulty. Maybe the company who installed the bars didn't actually do a good job, and so the bars don't actually prevent the burglar from coming in. He actually still breaks into your house. You still have the right to drive him out of your house. So I hope you see the analogy between this and abortion. It's basically 
you out of your own free will chose to perform an action of opening the window Mm-hmm. It's it's a free action. You have protection, so you have the bars. So you know you're using contraception, but the contraception's faulty. The bars are faulty, and somehow the burglar still manages to come in. And now you have, and because it was not your intention to actually invite the burglar in, you're free to expel him from your house. There's also another example she gives of people seeds, which is basically uh, it's it's a sort of a science fiction example that you know there there are these things called people seeds that float in the atmosphere and everybody lives in a house with windows that prevent these with the mesh that prevents these people seeds from coming in, but you know unfortunately your house the mesh doesn't work and so the people seeds come in and they embed it they embed themselves into the carpet or whatever and they start growing into actual people. You are not actually obligated to keep these people in your house just because they enter through a window you're free to kill them or you know throw them out whatever you want so even in this case the fetus is like the people seeds when you have you know you you perform this action of sex the fetus just happens to come into the picture that was not your intention the mesh the contraception didn't work and so yeah so these are the other two examples that she gives in order to just in order to justify abortion in cases of things that are not rape so the violinist case only works for rape. These cases are supposed to work for things that are not rape. Okay, so let's start with the uh, burglar one. Okay. What do you see as a problem with this? Right, so the, the, the biggest problem I see with this is something similar to the going to the uh, concert. So leaving the door open or leaving the window open is not equivalent to letting the burglar in. So every time you open a window in your house, it's not... You don't open the window to let the burglar in. Whereas every time you have sex, there is a high there is a high possibility of letting a, of of having it's a, it's 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 a natural consequence of of the action that you're performing. But it it's not a natural consequence of the action of opening the window that you're going to let a burglar in. And also trying hard to prevent something like you know I tried hard I I I use contraception I use this I use that trying hard to prevent something is not an excuse for running away from the consequences of that action. So you can say, you know, I used, I used contraception, I used uh, all these things, and yet I ended up conceiving a child. So I have the right to abort a child. It doesn't follow from the fact that you use contraception to you having a right to abort the child. It mm-hmm. only follows that the contraception didn't work. The fact that a child exists now, you have no right to actually end the life of another human being just because the life of that human being was an unintended consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also one more thing that I would like to point out about the burglar example, which is that the burglar is entering the house as an agent, as a free agent. So it's mm-hmm. the burglar's choice to enter the house versus the fetus does not actually have a choice. It's your action. It's purely your action. Like opening the window does not force the burglar to come in, but having sex in a way forces the fetus. Now I'm using the word forces carefully because I don't want it to in a negative sense, but it's sort of. There is a way in which having sex sort of ensures that the fetus comes into the world. It doesn't have a choice in coming in, so the analogy doesn't work on in in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the first kinds of things I started thinking about the mm-hmm. argument is that a burglar is an intentional agent, the mm-hmm. baby is not an intentional agent. Right, and and let me point something out as well. Like I think when a burglar enters your house he's actually giving up on some of the rights that he has. Like he has no more, let's say, right to access because he's not on public property anymore. He's on private property. So you have every right to sort of kick him out of your house. But the fetus is actually living in an environment that's just prepared for it. Like the uter- like the womb has no other use other than holding a fetus. 
Mm-hmm. So it's in an environment that's actually just that just for its own survival versus that's not the case with the burglar. So so the, the fetus has done nothing to strip it of its rights, whereas the burglar has done something. Now, if the burglar pulls out a gun and tries to shoot you, then you have a, every right to actually take physical action on the burglar and maybe shoot him back and kill him in self-defense. But the fetus has actually done nothing. So the burglar has forfeited his right to life, but the fetus has done nothing to forfeit his right to life or mm-hmm. her right to life. And therefore, you have no reason to have an abortion and the two cases are not analogous. Okay, so what about the, the people seeds? So again, the the only response that I have to the people seeds one, first of all, she makes a mistake with the people seeds because she says that, in the beginning of the article, by the way, in defense of abortion, she says that she's going to concede that a human being is a person. But then when you speak of people seeds, they're not actually people yet. So she's sort of going back on her position of sort of granting personhood to the fetus by mm-hmm. saying that, well, the fetus is more like people seeds, not actually people. They grow into people. And so it's okay to kill them when, you know, they are seeds. It's 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 okay. But the the bigger point is something I made in the burglar example, which is that again, the fact that you put a mesh and everything in does not actually you know, it doesn't let you escape from the consequences of the action. And once again, the the point that you brought up about the intentionality, the 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 people seeds they're coming in by an act of chance. Mm-hmm. It just happens so that your mesh doesn't work. And, you know, there are these people seeds blowing around. Nobody is actually forcing people seeds into other people's houses. It's not like you're, you know, there, there's nothing of that sort going on. There's no intentionality behind this. Whereas in the act of sex, there's actually consent. There's actually your, when you say yes to have sex with someone, even if you don't actually think of it, there's an implicit understanding that this act, if led to its natural consequences, will end in a pregnancy which is which is the reason why you use contraception when you're having sex because you know it, it, the use of contraception is an implicit acknowledgement of the fact that it is possible that you know I you might conceive and therefore it's good for me to use contraception mm-hmm. well let's look into the question of rape here some because you know this mm-hmm. is one of the areas where it does get a bit iffy for some people so yeah they can say you know I understand all these other cases, but rape is just such a great violation of a woman, and why should she have to suffer because Mm -hmm. of what this guy did? Right. Okay, so I want to make one point clear just for the sake of being sensitive. So what a lot of uh, pro-lifers don't actually do well enough is, you know, they sort of dismiss it by saying that, rape is just 1% of all abortions. And so let's mm-hmm. talk about the other abortions. Yeah. Well, even 1% of rape is 1% too many. Like we shouldn't be having, we, should, we shouldn't be talking about, and then looking at the number of abortions that happen in America, like Planned Parenthood does over, if I'm right, 300,000 abortions a year. And so if you're saying 1%, and I believe the number of total abortions goes into it like a million, but but if if 1% of that is a huge number, and so it's it's something that we need to talk about, which is why I said before that it's something that we need to come back to. But once again, I don't think ab- uh, the case of rape justifies abortion. Why? Because you're, the the means of someone's conception doesn't actually make them not a person. Or the mm-hmm. circumstances of someone's conception, so whether I was conceived in a rape or if I was conceived via consensual sex, or if I was conceived, you know, like, you know, in, in, in vitro fertilization or something, when I was conceived outside on, on a Petri dish, the means of my conception does not make me any less a person. 
And so the people who bring up the case of rape as an argument would still be forced, like they cannot deny the personhood of the fetus just based on how it was conceived. And so they would still have to accept in some form that the fetus is a person. And if the fetus is a person, then it's wrong to kill the fetus. But now they can make a separate argument by saying that, well, it is wrong to kill the fetus, but the greater evil would be to make the mother carry it to term because, you know, she's carrying the the product of her rape, let's say. And so that's the greater Mm -hmm. evil. And so we should choose the lesser evil, which is killing another person. And my response to that is I'm not convinced that it is a lesser evil. For one, for one, I could say that, you know, carrying the pregnancy to term while while it causes a certain amount of mental pain to the mother, it does not end another life and abortion actually ends a human life. And so I think that would be a more serious evil. Secondly, there is no guarantee that having an abortion is going to make you feel any better about the rape. Like you could still be mentally scarred by the rape. Then, you know, that the, as after an abortion, then as you would, if you're carrying the baby to term, like there is no proof of that, that you are actually going to feel better just because you aborted the the product of this rape. And again, I don't want to say product of this rape in a, de- in a dehumanizing way because we have to still acknowledge that it's a human being. Also, I think uh, an abortion is actually a horrible, abortion in the case of rape is a horrible thing because it actually hides the, let's say, the consequence of the perpetrator's action. So, you know, abortion can actually be a good way for the perpetrator to cover up the evidence of a rape. Mm-hmm. Because and it's often the case in cases of you know when when someone you know actually rapes you the person who raped the woman the person who rapes the woman forces the woman to get an abortion if he finds out that you know she is conceived and uh, he doesn't want people to know that he's responsible for it you know through whatever test they do and so he's the one who forces her to do it so I think for all these reasons I'm not convinced that abortion in the case of rape is actually the lesser evil than you know getting the woman to carry it to term because abortion, first of all, it doesn't undo what was done by the rape. Like abortion doesn't undo the rape. The rape still happened and the the scarring of the rape is going to remain with the woman. And that's a whole separate issue that the woman needs to be taken care of. And there are amazing services offered by like pregnancy care centers all over all over the States and Canada where they help women like this who are like in crisis pregnancies. And abortion doesn't punish the rapist like the rapist still gets away with what he did and you're actually giving him a way out by through this process of abortion so i would say that the woman actually carrying the pregnancy to term is is well, what should i say it, it's actually a response to the rape where the woman's telling the where the woman's telling the world that here something evil was done to me but through that evil i'm bring i'm still bringing something good into the world and i'm going to make sure that that this child no matter how it's conceived is still a human life and i'm going to respect it and i'm going to i'm going to carry it to term and give birth to it and make sure that either i'm going to take care of it or maybe give it up for adoption so it can have a happy life and so yeah but but i want i also want to add something else before i before we move from this topic which is if a woman has actually had an abortion as a result of rape, we shouldn't demean her or we shouldn't, you know, denigrate her for doing what she did. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of a lot of abortions actually happen as a as a result of desperation. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand that the people who do these actions, they are not they don't go into the abortionist's office thinking that, you know, 
I I'm going to kill a baby right now because this baby they they are more or less in in a, in a mental state where they they don't think about the philosophy that we're talking about and so for god forbid this happens to someone in the future they need to be prepared by knowing about the resources that are provided to them rather than you know rushing to this abortionist office where the abortionist basically takes advantage of you and you know tells you that there's no other way out they need to know that there is a way out through these uh, wonderful people who do this wonderful work but to women who already went through it you know we need to ha- we need to give them like pastoral care for like you know their 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 mental state their their health and they need to be taken care of and they need to help to recover from the the action that they've committed rather than rather than sort of denigrating them and saying that well you're a horrible person because you you had an abortion after after going through something equally horrible mm-hmm. yeah well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to the Deeper Wireless podcast. you got George Brom on this week talking about abortion. you here next week. I'm still working on that. got a few things in mind. We had a lot going on. I was falling behind. So I can't guarantee things, but I'm going to strive to bring you the very best that I can. For now, let's get back to George talking about abortion. Now, I, I definitely do agree with you that we as the church definitely need to have more forgiveness towards yep. people who have abortion, even if they have abortion for, say, purely selfish motives mm-hmm. and such. That we should be people who talk about forgiveness and really live it out. Yep. And I think that's the way Jesus would have handled it. Because, again, a good question to ask yourself when you're dealing with anything that you consider morally wrong is, is what would Jesus have done? Mm-hmm. And you know, what did Jesus um, tell people who came to him with different kinds of sin? He just, you know, he, he forgave them. He, he dealt with them as, as he does, he didn't, he didn't relieve them of the responsibility of their actions, but he also didn't, you know, demonize them. And he dealt with them in a way that he understood their circumstance. And he did tell them, go and sin no more. But he also dealt with their sin as, as the problem that it is, rather than viewing the whole person as the sort of monster that that is responsible for this act. Mm-hmm. Now, since you brought up all these pro-life agencies and such, I'm curious what you'd say to the kind of person who says, you know, all you pro-lifers are saying you care about the child as long as it's in the womb, but once the child is out of the womb, you don't really care about them anymore. Yeah, that's, a, again, I find that to be a strange accusation because... Let's okay. So, so there are studies, and I'm sorry, I cannot cite them right now off the top of my head. But there are studies that show that religious people give far more to charity than non-religious people, and they're they're helping people out far more than non-religious people. And it also happens to be the case that religious people are more likely to be pro-life than non-religious people. Although I know that there are a lot of non-religious people who are pro-life. So just you see this correlation, and you should be, you know, evangelicals give a lot to charity, and evangelicals are pro-life. So. It doesn't seem to me to be true that, you know, evangelicals and pro-lifers are just pro-birth and they don't help anybody after life. Um, evangelicals, I believe, again, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm citing this wrong, but they say that religious people are more likely to um, adopt mm-hmm. or something of the sort. And again, so so I, I don't think so. Th- again, these crisis pregnancy centers, for example, a lot of them, all of them are run by pro-life people and they are dedicated, you know, they give out things like free diapers, they give out like, you know, like medical supplies, medicines, they give out mm-hmm. things that, that take care of the mother, clothes for the babies, they don't, you know, like, like, and it's all for free, it's free of cost. 
the, the they take care of the mother in her time of need they take care of the of the the child that's born after its birth so we are not just pro birth we are actually uh, pro life for the whole life of the person and i think that stems from something that that is in the bible which is that everybody's created in the image of god and therefore from the womb for, right from the point of conception till the point they die they need to be taken care of now i will admit though that Christians haven't done a good enough job, at least as Christ has commanded us, that you know to take care of each other. And there are times when we so get caught up in, let's call it activism, for the pro-life movement that we don't have enough activism to take care or, or not activism. Sorry, we don't put it into practice. We don't put our theory into practice to actually do something ourselves if it's possible for us to do it. And I think that's something that the church should always be improving on. The church should be in a position where it's always influencing society for the better, where it's, you know, working for social causes as it is working for like God and uh, making society better. And I think uh, taking care of like, you know, women like this who are in crises and um, their their children, everything should be part of that, that mission. But I, again, this accusation that you know, pro-lifers are just pro-birth uh, pro and not pro-life as a whole. That's that's just ridiculous. And I think it's it's mostly politically charged. So you often hear this when you talk about illegal immigration or something like that. That's when people bring this up or refugees or something. That's when they bring it up when they say, you know, oh, you didn't let, you know, you're against illegal immigration. Therefore, you're not pro-life. You're only pro-birth. I, I don't think that that follows because there that's a whole different political legal argument to be had there. And I don't think it has anything to do with whether or not we value illegal immigrants as life it's it's more so that they are disobeying laws or whatever I, I don't want to get into that conversation but that's that's a completely different reason for why pro-lifers say would be accidentally like for for reasons not related to the pro-life cause they would be against something like illegal immigration so i take it you probably don't have much sympathy for the idea that christians should stay out of politics i do not but again it depends on what what you mean by politics so if you mean this sort of uh well, again, it's sort of be in the world, but not off the world. So like a Christian should, a Christian can be a politician, but a Christian should not like say, put politics above everything else and sort of their Christianity should not be a tool in their politics. More so the politics should be a tool for their Christianity. Mm -hmm. They use politics to sort of advance the the message of Christ, like say being pro-life or being in favor of like, um, you know, biblical marriage or something like that. You use if you're using politics to sort of advance your cause for Christ, then yes. But um, if if you're using your Christianity, you know, which many politicians do, they're Christian by name just to get the the votes of the people who are Christians. And you know, the the by the way, this ties into the personally pro-life but publicly pro-choice, Hillary Clinton and Al Gore, I believe, and uh, Tim Tim Kaine. Tim mm -hmm. Kaine is that was that his name? Yeah, mm -hmm. all of them are personally pro-life but publicly pro-choice. Yeah, I, I have no, I have no sympathy for those people just because, like, they're using their religion as a tool to get elected, and that's disgusting. So, if you mean, if you mean, um, Christian to stay out of politics in that way, yes. But if should Christians be in politics for their ultimate, like, say, purpose of glorifying God, then absolutely yes. So, what did you think then when Chelsea Clinton came out and said that uh, not supporting abortion is unchristian? I actually heard of that, but I haven't paid attention. So, do you know? Do you know what uh, what was her reasoning behind it? Like, was it like a lack of sympathy for the woman or something? Like, do you know what her reasoning was behind it? Uh, I honestly don't. I, I just saw the okay. story. And yeah, yeah no, no worries. Yeah, I saw the headline, but I actually like, I honestly have 
extremely little patience for politicians. But let me just make a point about the general like pro-choice and Christian movement. To me, being pro-choice and Christian is actually, I would say, a borderline heresy. And let me tell you why. Because Jesus Christ himself was conceived as an unborn child in the womb of the in the womb of a virgin. And which you do affirm. Which I do affirm, by the way, I affirm the virgin birth, uh, in case anybody didn't hear it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But Jesus Christ was kind of conceived as an unborn child, as a fetus. And if you are denying the humanity of the fetus, then you're denying the humanity of Christ at the point he was in his mother's womb. And if you're denying the humanity of Christ, I think that's a serious heresy. Mm-hmm. So if you are pro-choice, and if I find out that you don't actually consider the humanity of the fetus, or if you don't consider the fetus to be a person, if you believe that at that point in time when Christ was in the womb of his mother, by the way, she had every reason to abort him because, you know, it was a horrible thing. The child was conceived at a wedlock and, you know, it was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but but in society, it, it wasn't a good thing. So she could have had every reason to do it, but she didn't. And I think that's a sign that shows that, you know, like the fact that Christ was a fetus once proves to us that because Christ is fully God and fully human, it proves to us that the fetus, every fetus is actually human because Christ sort of sanctified that that stage of human life. He went through that stage of human life. And to deny the humanity of the fetus to me seems to be denying the humanity of Jesus at that point of mm-hmm. his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I agree with so much of that. I, I, I really just don't understand. I mean, Chuck Colson, when he was alive, he gave a talk at the National Conference on Apologetics one time. And he mm-hmm. said something along the lines of, if you consider yourself a Christian, you consider yourself to be pro-choice, you really need to go and examine your Christianity at the door. And he got a standing ovation as soon as he said that. And it's right in the middle of his talk. And mm-hmm. he, he always paused it. wow, I'm, I'm not used to getting that kind of response when I say something like that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like aside from even the Christianity of it, like like just the the inhumane nature of the act, it just shocks me that that people are so open to it. Like there was a shout your abortion movement just a while ago, and I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like back in the day, they used to talk about how abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, but now it's not even rare anymore. It's like you know, just shout your abortion. There was a comedian who spoke at the. Uh, White House correspondence dinner when she said, you know, like, you know, when you get your abortion, you should really knock that baby out. So it's like it's not it's not the fact that they're even denying it's a baby anymore. They know all of that and it and, and, and they yet affirm it. And I'm I'm shocked that Christians don't have a problem with actually siding with these people and um defending this this horrible act. I actually read Hillary's book, What Happened. Mm-hmm. I got it at the library. Did you and- get an answer to what happened though? Where it's by on the cover, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and in what one point she said there was someone on it's like, I believe that God will judge us as a nation based on how we have treated our children. And hmm. someone on something, oh by God, she better hope she's wrong on that one. Right. And and yeah. And honestly, like she cites her Christian faith all the time. She says, you know, my Christian faith was influential into me getting into politics and in my Mm -hmm. daily life. And I read my Bible and I do this and I believe she's a Methodist or something. But then she goes out there and she defends, she gets the Margaret Sanger Award, I believe it is. Like, like, it's just insane as to how 
you can be like so dissonant in like how you perceive reality. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the main things that keeps me voting conservative so much mm-hmm. is the whole abortion issue. I, I, I just can't stomach someone who wants to defend killing the unborn. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's get back to that great thing again. This is a question I asked our guest last week about this topic. And this kind of fits in, I think, the whole thing about safe, legal, and rare. If, hypothetically, I mean, I know you don't live in our country, but Mm. let's suppose hypothetically you were an American. Right. And there was passed this possible law to ban all abortions except in the case of rape, incest, and saving the life of a mother. Mm. Would you support this? I would say yes, but I would also make it clear that I don't agree with two of the criteria that they mm-hmm. set up, namely uh, rape and incest. But for me, like even one fewer abortion is a better thing. So I'm in support of like uh, restricting abortions to like rape, uh, incest, and uh, danger to the life of the mother. And even if you know they set up something like a 24 week barrier, because uh, I I think in the states they do, but like in Canada, it's shocking that we're one of the only Western countries that have no regulation on abortion whatsoever. You could get an abortion the day before you're due. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that's that. So so I am happy for any law that even reduces the number of abortions gradually. And ultimately, I believe that all abortions should be ended. But even reducing the number of abortions from what they are today, I would be happy. So like defund Planned Parenthood, even though Planned Parenthood is not the only organization, they are the biggest organization that, that you know performs abortions. And so defund them and uh, make a law that only restricts abortion to cases of like rape, incest, and uh, danger to the life of the mother. And I would support that, but I would also make it clear as like my public position, say that this is a good step, but it's, 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 it's not, it's not the step that I want, but it's at least a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that so much. <clears throat> I, I think that if we can do anything we can to reduce any number of abortions like that, that's a good thing. You know, we're talking about how you can get an abortion at any time. I, I can but think that back when I was in school or ever middle school or high school and such, that if I needed to take any medicine at school, even if it was just cough drops, mm-hmm. I needed to have a doctor's permission to have it, and I had to bring it to a school or whatever, even for cough drops. And yes, because I have that happened before. Mm-hmm. But a woman, a teenage girl can go in and get an abortion done freely, and her parents don't even have to know about it. Yep. Yep. It, it scares me that, that there's no accountability for these huge organizations that actually just, like, kill babies, basically. And God only knows what they do with their with the fetal parts after that. But even the fact that they're just killing these human beings and they get away with it and they're funded by the government in some way, and Obama goes up there and says, you know, God bless Planned Parenthood. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. You use the word God and Planned Parenthood in the same sentence. That's a shock. And then you you ask God to bless them. That's even worse. Uh, I understand Planned Parenthood has a new president who is kind of refreshingly being very straightforward about what she wants Planned Parenthood to do. 
Oh, she said something along the lines of uh, it's our mission to provide safe abortions or something. I remember that. Yeah, it's, and it goes against their whole 3% tagline. They say only 3% of what we do is abortions. Well, right now you just came out and said that your mission is to provide abortion. So clearly it's it's changed positions. Mm-hmm. You know, what about, what do you think about all these people who also say that, you know, you need to keep Planned Parenthood active because women need mammograms. Uh, I believe Planned Parenthood does not provide mammograms. I could be wrong, but that's what I read. They do not provide mammograms. And um, they do provide uh, pregnancy tests, but you could get one at, like, CVS. So, like, why would you go to Planned Parenthood? Like, why would you need Planned Parenthood to exist for, say, like, contraception or or um, a pregnancy test? I, I don't understand. Like, like, they, like, you read Margaret Sanger's quotations, and she's a eugenicist, and she clearly has an agenda. A racist agenda, by the way, which is why I don't understand why a whole lot of, like, appeal to, like, uh, the Democrats appeal to black people because, like, Margaret Sanger was a racist and she founded Planned Parenthood and she was a eugenicist and believed that there's there are such things as favored races. And now you're here saying that her organization should be blessed by God and you, you get awards in her name. Mm-hmm. That just shocks me. We are to mind everyone at this point that you're listening to the People Wardrobe's podcast. Everything we do here is supported by people like you. Ordinary people who just give a little of themselves. And it means so much. I mean, whether it's a one-time donation of, say, 50 or 100 bucks, and some of you might say, well, that sounds like too much here. Where even better is to be just a regular monthly donor, even if it's just five, ten, twenty bucks or so. Whatever you want to give. I mean just the price that you could pay for getting, say, a cup of coffee at Starbucks, you could be supporting an apologetics ministry that's aiming to reach more and more people out there. You know, if you want to do this you go to my website at deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a link on the side help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link and when you do that, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Are you still in the right place? Is there a problem with my website? Nope. Everything is working just fine still. And uh, that's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. So you go there, and you make your donation, and you get in touch with me, or Ari, or Mike, or Debbie, one of us, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. That way, we can make sure that we get that donation here, and it will be tax deductible for you. You can also go on Amazon and buy ebooks that I have written, or co-written, written, or is the... Uh, Apostles, the Creed for the Ages, the Apostles Creed and Today's Christian, and co-written is um, books like Defining Inerrancy and Contextualizing Inerrancy, just came out, and also you can get the Mention of Ours Project, which has been one of our most popular ones out there, and that's uh, me and the other Mention of Ours. Which, by the way, we are going to be speaking in uh, in Texas at the end of March in Waco, if you're interested in that. But that's all of us pitching together to answer questions. 
And there was also God and natural disasters, Christian answers, or risk generations questions. Groundless, looking at Dan Barker. That's all I can think of right now. There could be a few others. And also, guys, jewelry. Okay, Valentine's Day is coming up. Maybe you want to buy something special for that lady out there. Maybe you even want to pop that question to her out there. Well, jewelry can always help with that. Most every woman loves jewelry. My, my own wife does, and she can't even wear it that much because of the reaction she has to knicker sometimes. But whenever she can, she enjoys wearing it. So what do you do? You go to our website, and there's a uh, link to Premier Jewelers. One of our friends does that one for us. And you make your purchase there, and whatever jewelry you purchase, 25% of that goes to support people waters. And guys, you know what I've always told you about this kind of thing. You can buy a piece of jewelry for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy a piece of jewelry for that lady in your life to make up that screw-up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't do any of these, please consider going on iTunes and leaving behind a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. And guys, you have no idea how much these mean to me. I love seeing these reviews. It's such a great highlight to me. Now, George, do you have any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Um, sure. So you should donate to Deeper Waters, but um, you should also, um, something you should consider doing is a website I write for. <laughs> it's uh, called Human Defense Initiative, and uh, you can find them at humandefense.com and go to their uh, Get Involved page and scroll all the way down, and I believe they have a GoFundMe page down there. So uh, it's humandefense.com. And basically what they do is they're a millennial organization that publishes articles regularly on pro-life issues. And they raise, they raise awareness on these issues. And I believe they also support like crisis pregnancy centers and women who are involved in these things. So that's an organization that I would uh, ask you to support. And also Life Training Institute, which is uh, Scott Klusendorf's organization. They do a good job. Uh, Stand to Reason. Um, Greg Kokel's organization, they do a lot of uh, pro-life advocacy as well, so consider donating to these uh, great organizations. Mm. I, I was kind of surprised when you started talking about the one, the first one, the Human Defense Act Initiative. When you talk about it, it's a mini, millennial organization, because I think there's a lot of people out there who look and think that millennials are just being a very troublesome generation. They don't really share our values and such. That's not necessarily the case, is it? No, absolutely not, actually. So they found out that, um, interestingly, Generation Z, which is the generation that I belong to after, I believe, 1995, they're... Mm this generation is the most conservative and pro-life generation there ever has been in the Western, uh, in Western countries. And so that's actually an interesting observation. Now it's not overwhelmingly pro-life, but it's better. It's, it's, it's the most pro-life since the, since I believe the second world war. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's something to be proud of. And I think we hope that the next generation will be even more so than us, but 
I, I think like this is good progress that we're making. So millennials are out there. And a lot of millennials I see, you know, even in my city of Toronto, I see on the streets, I can find pro-life activists all of my age. You won't find anyone above the age of like, say, 35 or 40. They're all like between 20 and like 30, say, and they're all out there in the heat, in the rain. They have like umbrellas and like raincoats and whatever not. And they're standing with like these posters of pro-life messages. And they, they're just out there to get the message out, changing people's minds. And there, there are cases where they get attacked. There were a couple of cases on video that, that like sort of went viral on YouTube. But there are cases every day of like where people insult them and whatnot. But they don't stop. They, they just keep doing the work because they, they know this is an issue that people need to be aware of. And, you know, I applaud them for, for what they do. I do think one definite advantage we have in winning over the next generation is since we're the pro-life ones, we're more likely to produce that next generation. Of course, of course. Yeah, and and, and like the, the, the funniest thing, I, I, I said this to someone else, is like the kids of Democrats are the ones who are more likely to be Democrats, and yet you're the ones promoting abortion, so you're basically reducing your own like voter base. Mm. And so... What's up with that? <laughs> if, if you're promoting abortion, you have fewer people to vote for your party, likely, and it's 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 just it's just kind of stupid. But anyway, yeah, that, that's that's just a joke. It's not necessarily true because I I I know people who I know I know liberals in Canada who changed their mind on abortion just after they met one of my friends who was like on the streets of of like Toronto. Or, or or on campus in at the University of Toronto, they basically just spoke to someone and they changed their mind. And they tell me these stories of people who thought that abortion was a humane process and then they see these pictures or these videos, which by the way have disclaimers in the beginning of like violent content. They see these videos of abortions or cartoons of like abortions, animations of abortions being performed. And they just change their mind because they cannot believe, first of all, the 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 organism that this is being done to and secondly the the process that this how inhumane it is yeah i i think it's um peter hitchens christopher hitchens is clever who made the statement that you know abortion you can show pretty much anything else that you want to on television yeah but you don't show abortions right because if people find out what it actually looks like they won't have one Mm mm-hmm and then and, and, and so many cases where they show the ultrasound of the baby before, like, you know, before the abortions had and the mother changes her mind because she sees that it's actually a human being with a beating heart. And it's, 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 it's what she was. It's what everyone is at one point in life. And, 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 and that's, that, that's, that's what you're killing. And mm-hmm. if, if, if you have no qualms about that, there is, Either you're being misinformed, which is the case for most people, or you just have no heart. Then you're like like Kermit Gosnell, who's just like, just doesn't care. You would like kill babies if, if you have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, One thing that I actually wanted to mm-hmm. uh, bring up uh, in, in our general like philosophical conversation was something that, that would be helpful for pro-lifers out there is, uh, are you familiar with the embryo rescue case? Um, yes, I think that's the case, you know, like, you're uh, in a burning building, you can yep. save one person or a hundred embryos. Right, yes. So would you save like one person, a hundred embryos? Well, like, it, aren't those hundred human beings, basically, versus like one person? So shouldn't you save like hundred? It's sort of a modified trolley problem. And um, and, and this is the, something that I got stumped at when someone asked me once, because, you know, I had to affirm that the embryo is a human being. 
but also that the hundred em- I, I would probably go and save this one person rather than the hundred embryos. But then I thought about it, and and I think Christopher Kagzer in his book uh, The Ethics of Abortion has a good response to this. He says mm-hmm. uh, he says that like even in all cases we sort of have a moral justification for affirming that two things are human beings, but then also treating those human beings differently. So we don't actually treat all human beings the same way. For example, if um, I walk down the street and I meet someone and I slap them in the face, I'd probably not get arrested for it unless they report me, you know, to the police or whatever. Or even if I get arrested, you know, I might, I might get charged for assault or something and get out of prison after like maybe uh, after a while or I'll be forced to pay a fine or something but if I go up to Donald Trump and slap him I'd mm. probably be in a much worse state than I'd be if I go and slap someone on the street and so we treat people differently why because of of we see different let's say socially um we see we see different social I'm not sure how to put this we we um we attribute social things, utility sort of well i don't want to use the word social utility because that has sort of negative connotations for the for the abortion case but we 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 judge different people differently so for example why would i save the one person over the 100 embryos i affirm that both are cases of human beings but i would save the one person if i could save both i would save both but i would only save if i could only save one i would save the one person because let's say they have social investment sorry that was the word i was looking for like they have society they, uh, like society and family they have society and family invested in them they have responsibilities towards people so this one human being might have like five kids to take care of and a wife to provide for like she might be a stay-at-home mom so like you know he's the only one with a job and they have relationships with others they have people who love them versus these hundred embryos even though they are they are human lives if i could only save one i would see which one has the more say social investment and save that one again this would probably be a case where you're restricted to like you you choose the better of the two bad options mm-hmm. and you're for and you have to let something bad happen but you're not actually actively going and destroying the embryos it's just something that happens to them but you actually choose which one you're to save based on this sort of social investment thesis that um i think christopher kags or uh, puts in his uh, ethics of abortion book i i believe he uses a different word i don't i, I just don't remember the the word that he uses mm-hmm. And for anyone interested, Christopher Kaxer has been on our show before. So if you're interested in seeing what I say, because I'm pretty sure I brought this one up to him also, go back and check out archives. It's fair so you can hear it. You know, one illustration I was thinking about along those lines, to use the same kind of cases, effectively, if you and I and my wife, for instance, are walking down the street and a gunman comes towards us, and I can only save one of you. Where George, you're a great guy, but I'm protecting her first. Of course. Or, or, or. So again, like, or even in the case where, like, a, a, a husband, a wife, and a child are walking down the street, and let's say, like, you know, in the case of Bruce Wayne, um, and you know, the gunman comes up to them, and they and they want to kill him. It's 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 highly likely that the father is going to defend the child first. Because he knows that his wife's an adult and his wife's going to like, you know, she can do something that the, that the let's say, a toddler cannot. 
And so you mm-hmm. you 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 have all these considerations. You don't actually hate your wife. You don't actually dehumanize your wife, or you're not dehumanizing me. You're just going for that which you're most invested in, and or you think is most like vulnerable in, in the case of like protecting your child over your wife. So mm-hmm. there is there is no immorality in that action. It's just a fact about how we treat people differently. Mm-hmm. And we all do it. I mean, yep. every single one of us, we put special exemptions on our family yep. in many cases. Yep. And and I, I believe even God sort of does that. As much as you know, God loves everyone equally, but mm-hmm. he treats different people differently on the basis of their actions. So, you know, if if if, if you're not a Christian... If you if you don't accept Christ as your personal savior, and uh, if you, you know if you're not leading a holy life, then it's 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 God will treat you differently. So we all treat people differently. That's we don't treat everybody equally, either based on their actions, either based on their relationship to us. You know, because we are God's children and someone else is not. So so on, on, we we all treat different people differently, and I don't think that's a, that's an argument for abortion. It's probably just a fact about human nature. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk some about this kind of thing with some more political aspects. You mentioned Margaret Singer, Singer for instance, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you probably read her book, Pivot of Civilization. I actually haven't. I, I actually haven't. Okay. Yeah. I actually have read it. Okay. It's one of the, what Benjamin Weicker calls, one of the 10 books that screwed up the world mm. and such. But I mean, you know enough about me, what, what makes someone like Margaret Singer such a dangerous person? Well, it's sort of how, first of all, it is how they present themselves. So you have someone who's a woman at a time when women didn't have, say, the sort of rights. Now, I put rights in like scare quotes because that's been sort of misdefined in different ways to things that don't include what actually genuinely consists of rights, like a right to an abortion. So women don't, uh, she lived at a time when women didn't have those sorts of rights. And she was like, you know, willing to stand up to what people call today the patriarchy of the time. And so so they sort of embed themselves in this like heroic aura. And then they present this message. And the perniciousness of that message is sort of covered up by the the aura that's around them, this heroic thing. And mm-hmm. so people often ignore the perniciousness of the message and go after the the person, it's sort of a personality cult of sorts that you believe everything that they say. So that's sort of what that's sort of what I feel is sort of the circumstances, how they present themselves is what makes them dangerous, in addition to how they present their ideas. So you would never probably find her saying, you know, killing human beings or something, but she would I haven't read the book, but I've read quotations by her and she wouldn't present it in a way, for example, she wouldn't present abortion in a way that it's killing a human being. She would present it in a way that, you know, women need to have the right to an abortion or women or abortion is a form of birth control. We are just preventing the child from being born. We're not killing the child. We're just preventing it from being born. And um, abortion is just another form of like a contraceptive mechanism. So, so it's how they present their ideas. It's how they present themselves that sort of blind people from seeing the true consequences of their message. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what do you think is going to be our future of all this politically? Because we were talking about how millennials are very, very pro-life nowadays. And do you see, for instance, say, the possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned? 
Uh, yeah, so so I'm not sure if I'm extremely qualified to like uh, comment on that, but it is possible for it to be overturned, except there's also this issue of it being viewed as like a sacred precedent that mm. that you know it should be respected. Like even Brett Kavanaugh back mm. in uh, not not during his this confirmation, his confirmation to the DC Circuit back in. Uh, I believe it was like 2006, uh, when he was being cons- confirmed for that, they asked him, what do you think of it? And he said, you know, well, it's a precedent that I would respect. And I think that mentality should change and judges should be willing to come out and say, you know, it's it's garbage law. Like it's it's it's, mm-hmm. it's unconstitutional. There There is no right to an abortion in the American constitution, which I happen to have read, just to make sure that it isn't there. And it's, it's sort of a... Uh, what do you say? It, it, it's construed out of this twisted interpretation of the right to privacy and the right to health care combined to form a right to abortion. So it's, it's it's not even straightforward. And I've heard several like legal experts talk about this and say that it's 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 just not a good law. And mm-hmm. so I, I want judges to come out and say that let's judge something on its merits. Like if, if we have to reconsider something, let's judge it on its merits, because if something's a bad law, then that needs to be changed. And so if mm-hmm. we have so if 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 America gets someone like that on the court, then it's possible. But again, given the political climate these days, millennials are becoming pro-life, but you also have a polarization to the opposite side. So you would also find people moving to the far left and you know, becoming like these socialist hypercharged, you know, individual activists. And you have so 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 you have this on both sides, and there are people in the middle who are being isolated. And they have to pick a side as well. And so politicians, they have to choose a side, which side they need to campaign on. And more often than not, they sort of appeal to the to the left side of the political spectrum and say, you know, well, these right-wingers are coming to take your abortion. They, you know, they're trying to enforce the patriarchy. Everything's going to become the handmaid's tale, which uh, Canada apologizes for, you know, the Margaret Atwood. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. but <clears throat> anyway, so, so, so it's all this fear-mongering that, that sort of, uh, what do you call, panders to the left that I feel that makes me pessimistic to say that abortion is going to be outlawed. And even if it's outlawed, I mean, even if Roe v. Wade's overturned, abortion's not going to go away because doesn't it, doesn't it mean that it just goes back to the States and um, they decide whether or not Mm -hmm. it should be, whether it should be allowed that that would be a better thing because I know that there will be Mm -hmm. States that ban abortion, but even then, like, well, I I would say that's a step in the right direction, but even then I'm a bit pessimistic about it. Mm Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and uh, I do think so that it, it could happen, but yeah, it'd be a step in the right direction to get even that to happen. Mm. And I, I thought it was interesting when you started talking about the patriarchy and such, because it, it doesn't make sense to me when I hear all these women talk about how they don't want to be used by men anymore. They need abortion for them, so I think, do you not know what you're saying? Abortion makes it more likely that a man will use you. Yep. It's the same thing with the birth control pill and abortion. It's it's like all these rights that women fought for, let's say in like the second wave of feminism, which is like in the in the sixties when they, you know, they wanted all these things like abortion and birth control and all that stuff. They actually, let's say, enslaved women more so than um freed them from things because it just they, they looked for autonomy, and in autonomy, they lost responsibility. And once mm-hmm. there's no longer responsibility, anybody can do whatever they want. 
And if anybody can do whatever they want, it no longer matters whether you're doing it to yourself or to someone else. Because, you know, you can argue that whatever I do to my own body is fine, but I shouldn't do it to someone else. But like, once you're free, once you have no boundaries, what distinguishes your lack of respect for yourself from your lack of respect for someone else? Everybody's equal. Mm -hmm. You don't view anybody as any different from yourself and you're just going and attacking them. Nobody's sacred. Nothing is sacred. And so you see the rise of everything from like pornography to rape and everything is a Mm -hmm. product of like this running after autonomy and freedom from like restrictions. Yeah. I think about these women who want to go on, say, these topless marches and such to make sure the men really pay attention to them. I mean, yeah, um, the men are paying attention to you. It's just not for the reasons you want. It's not the right sort of attention. No. Yeah. Once again, it just does come back to that this is all done in the name of sex, and I agree. Abortion has kind of like become a sacred cow, where it looks like, in my eyes at least, the left is willing to do practically anything they can as long as no one dares question the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and if anybody does question, you have all these labels that come on you. You know, you're trying to take away our rights and, you know, ab- I, I, like, you know, you're going to kill us all if, 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 if uh, abortion no longer exists, then uh, women are going to try to abort the babies themselves and, you know, they'll die in like record numbers. All the statistics that they say that, um, you know, women were dying in like record numbers before, uh, uh, before 1973, all those numbers are actually false. And uh, abortion, like uh, Bernard Nathanson, he's, uh, he was the president of NARAL in uh, America. He basically came out and said, that we falsified those numbers just to make it look like, you know, we were in a horrible situation before abortion was legalized. As a matter of fact, the numbers of women dying because of illegal, unsafe abortions was actually going down because of medical advances like penicillin and, you know, all these antibiotics and people weren't dying of infections and all that sort of stuff because of medical advances, not because of abortion being legalized. So mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's all, it's, so they just want, the moment you step out against abortion, they throw all these false facts at you and they somehow seem to think that if they shout louder, their point is actually true. Like you can make an untrue thing sound true by just shouting louder and uh, mm-hmm. hosting marches and like banging the Supreme Court doors or whatever. Yeah, I, I think we are a member. Let's just say that right for lunacy that was going on during the Kavanaugh hearing, and I think the great fear all throughout that was abortion. Yep. And Brett Kavanaugh, I believe, didn't he actually, like, rule against uh, something that, that, that would, I, 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 I don't know the news properly, but it, it had something to do with, like, defunding or reconsidering uh, funding Planned Parenthood. Like, he, he, and, uh, he sided with the liberal side of the court, not the conservative side of the court. I don't know about that one. Yeah, it was a, it was a recent case in which uh, he basically, I think they brought up uh, reconsidering funding a bunch of or- organizations, and uh, one of them was Planned Parenthood, and I believe Clarence Thomas wrote like a dissenting opinion saying that the only reason we didn't consider this case was because it involved this thing called Planned Parenthood, and he was like sort of disappointed that uh, Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh both sided with the liberals and not with like him and Gorsuch who were mm-hmm. in favor of like this this thing. Mm-hmm. What do you say when you do have these politicians that seem to speak out both sides of their mouth they say they're 
they are personally against abortion and such, but they they do take the stance they do for political reasons. What do you say to someone who says, you know, personally, I I do oppose abortion, but I do think it should be a right that a woman does have. So I would ask them, so again, you, you, uh, like Greg Kokold's uh, Colombo method, just ask them, what do you mean by personally opposed to abortion? Why are you personally opposed to abortion? And get them to say why they're personally opposed to it. Like, do they admit that it's a life that's being killed? If they do so, then you should ask them, does anybody have the right to choose for a life to be killed? Like, you know, I don't, I don't like rape. I'm personally against rape, but I respect the right of another man to use his body in a way of rape. Is that, is that a justifiable thing for me to say? No, it's not, because I, if I believe that rape's harmful, I would not want it to persist in society. Now, a possible counterexample could be, well, what about something like smoking? So, you know, smoking is a bad thing, and you might be personally opposed to smoking, but why don't you just, well, why don't you just go pulling out cigarettes from people's mouths and, like, stopping them from smoking? Well, they're doing it to their own body. They're not doing it to someone else. They are still doing it to their own body and they're harming themselves. And there are laws you know, against harming yourself or whatever, but generally we agree that you do have a right to some extent to harm yourself. But once that harm starts harming someone else, so like, you know, once you're actually blowing smoke in people's faces, then you need to stop. And I think that's the case with mm-hmm. abortion. It's not something that you're doing just with your own body. There's another body involved, a distinct like human life involved. And... So your position is basically inconsistent with your, your public position, say, is inconsistent with your private position. If abortion is killing, then you should be against it. You cannot be privately against killing and publicly for it. So what are some steps you think we can take to change the tide, as it were? I think having good conversations is the only way we can do it because, like, again, there's this two polarized sides of the spectrum, and we're probably somewhere <clears throat> in between that because on one side, you know, both sides are a shouting match, and we need to sort of step away from all this emotion and start thinking with our heads and not with our hearts. Like, we need to we need to feel the pain of other people, but we shouldn't substitute mm-hmm. that. We shouldn't substitute emotion for rational thinking. Rational thinking still needs to exist, and... We need to ask people questions. That's all. Like when I talk to someone about abortion, rarely do I actually give out my argument in the form, you know, the the common sense argument in that form. I only ask questions most of the time. And then some at some point in time, an inconsistency in their position comes out. And then I apply the argument and point out this is where you this is where you're going wrong. Do you want to reconsider it or this is another so there's one is having good rational conversations another way of doing it is what my friends do and i'll be honest i don't handle violence really well so i'm not, I'm not I, I i i dislike violent images uh whether it be in movies or tv shows or seeing it but i know my friend a lot of my friends do this and i've i've participated in uh, some of their activism as well where they basically describe the abortion process to different people they hand out like these uh, small cards that have like a brief description of the process with like an image of uh, an aborted fetus and uh, people are shocked there are people who get violent when they see this because and 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 that's and as much as you know if they if they harm one of my friends that's a horrible thing but at least they get the right reaction 
No, because this is how you're supposed to react when you see something horrible. You're supposed to be angry at it. And it's almost like a defense mechanism that you see in people when they say, like, take this away from me. I don't want to see this. And and you need to stop them and ask, you know, why don't you want to see this? This is what you're advocating for. Are you okay with this happening if it was if it was someone you loved and you wanted to be born, but, you know, someone chose to, like, kill them in this manner? And... Mm-hmm. And they often don't have anything to say, and the anger and the hatred is is a sort of defense mechanism to their not being able to say something. But like Greg Kokel says, you know, you at least put a stone in their shoe, you send them away with something to think about. Because rarely do I find that, you know, after one conversation, someone changes their mind. But I've I've had instances where someone comes back to me and says, you know what, I didn't react well yesterday, but I thought about what you said, and I want to talk about it more. I haven't changed my mind yet, but I'd love to talk about it more. And you know what, like, I, I know at least like half a dozen people I know personally who've changed their minds after like having a couple of years of conversation with them. And now they're like pro-life. So good conversation and good activism where like you don't give up even if you're being, you know, attacked from all sides. Mm-hmm. Now, let's get a bit more pastoral personal here. Let's suppose there was a woman out there who's listening to the show and she is considering having an abortion. She's pregnant, of course. What would you say to this woman? So, first of all, I would like to, I, I would ask her to get as much of support as she can because, like, accepted or not, she's in a difficult stage of her life where she has to make important choices that she either will feel happy about or she'll regret about. Like, there's nothing in between. There's no neutral choice that you can make if you're in that situation. It's something that you regret for the rest of your life or you're happy with and so she needs to and 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 she's not if if she's not in a place to make these decisions by herself she needs to go to someone she trusts and someone who has her best interest in mind and i can guarantee you that it's not an abortion clinic they don't have Mm -hmm. your best interest in mind the better place would be places dedicated to women just like them crisis pregnancy centers like they're in a crisis they're pregnant they need to head somewhere where people care about them where people care about what she's carrying namely a baby and they need to talk and she needs to talk to them and she needs to figure her options out and by the way crisis pregnancy centers don't force a woman not to have an abortion that's something to keep in mind they don't they 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 don't tell you that we're going to hold you in prison here and prevent you from getting an abortion they talk to them, they, they help them out, they, they give them advice, they, they help them deal with their emotional issues, with their, you know, emotional, like, the, the emotions they're going through as they're pregnant and their conflicted feelings about this, but they would never force you to do anything against their will. So go and talk to someone who can actually, who actually cares for you and who has your best interests in mind and make your own decision. But just remember that the decision you make, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. And... It's often the case that there are so many women who make these decisions and then they, they, they're they just not able to live with it. And it so often happens that it's women who ha- who have had abortions and later on in life they start regretting it. And women who haven't had abortions, who, 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 who have been like, you know, raped or whatever not, but they ended up actually giving birth to their babies. I'm yet to hear a case where a woman says, you know what, I should have aborted that child. I'm yet to have heard Mm -hmm. it might have happened. I don't know, but I'm yet to have heard of such a case where a woman says that, if anything, the child's glad that he was not aborted or she was not aborted. I believe the actor Jack Nicholson actually was supposed to be aborted. He's a liberal, but he was supposed to be aborted, but he wasn't aborted, and now he's pro-life. 
And uh, so, mm-hmm. so cases like that just just convince me that the right decision to be made here is not abortion. But again, it's the decision that the woman has to make, not with an abortionist, but with someone who actually cares for her and who has her best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. And what would you say to a woman out there who is struggling with guilt because she has had an abortion? Well, that's an ex- so I would say there is no secular answer to that because like there is nothing that would like calm you down after you have come to the realization that you've killed or you were part of the killing of a human being. Like that's just something that happened and you cannot bring him back. But I would say that I would share the message of Christ with her and just tell her that regardless of what her past is, like Christ has forgiven her and Christ died for every sin, including abortion. Like, you can you can name any other sin and add abortion to that list and Christ has died for all of them and so Christ's sacrifice covered her sin as well and she can rest assured that her child is in heaven and she can she can be be comforted about that fact now i'm not advocating that just because you know your child goes to heaven doesn't mean you should have an abortion but but for someone who has had an abortion that would be a source of comfort Letting her know that, letting her know the message of Christ that one day probably she can meet her child and she can be reconciled with him or her, and uh, that her sin, the guilt that she's feeling of of the sin that she's committed, she need not feel guilty anymore just because Christ has died for her sin as well, and Christ loves her, and there is someone who loves her regardless of what she's done. Mm-hmm. Well, George, it's been a good discussion, and to be clear, people, this is. The first time you've been interviewed like this, isn't Yes, it? it is the first time. I was a bit nervous at the beginning. I think I'm I'm better now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I affirm the virgin birth. Now, good. I'm glad to hear that you affirm the virgin birth, which I do affirm as well. Now, do you uh, have a, a blog, a website, an email, a way for people to get in touch if they want to find out more about sure. you? Sure. So I, I run a blog uh, that I occasionally update. It's uh, it's called cogentchristianity.com. So it's C-O-G-E-N-T. C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-I-T-Y. Sorry, I forgot how to spell Christianity. CogentChristianity.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm quite active on Twitter at George Brahm. So G-E-O-R-G-E-B-R-A-H-M. That's my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. So those are the two places where you can find me and you can send me a message or, or something and I'd be happy to like talk to you or interact or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave Dave with deeper waters audience? Um, well, um, I just I, I just want to encourage everyone to like look into this issue of abortion because it's 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 something that you cannot be neutral about. And and one thing that disturbs me is that the church is so neutral about this issue, especially the evangelical church, like as a church, not a, not as like you know these parachurch organizations like Life Training Institute or Santa Reason. They're doing a fantastic job, but the church as a whole is not doing a good job or a good enough job in like, you know, teaching their members about this, about this horrible thing that's going on. And I think we can end it sooner if we work together in raising awareness. And and so the church needs to wake up and uh, spread the message that, that that would be my, that would be my message to like pastors, elders, priests, or whoever, whoever is leading a church and is listening to this, like my appeal to them would be that they, they seriously consider, um, bringing up this issue of abortion in their congregations. Like there's no stigma in talking about it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel ashamed to talk about it. There's no problem in talking about it. It's something that needs to be talked about. Mm. Well, George, I'd like to thank you for taking your time to come on here. 
to our show today, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, I'll be glad to be back. Thank you so much. Back to mind when next week, where I'm still working at, but I will try doing best. I'm always open to suggestions. People, if you have any ideas of someone or some topic you'd like to see on my show, let me know. Can't guarantee you I'll do it, but I'm open to it. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.